0: Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share a few things about this podcast. As you know, this is an independent, ad-free, one-woman production, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep us going. There are a few simple things that you can do to help. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whichever apps you listen to your shows on. You can recommend the show in true crime discussion and fan groups. You can join our discussion group on Facebook. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to do a little bit more to help me out, you can go over to Patreon, search for California Dreaming, or the link you can find in the show notes, and check out the exclusive bonuses that you can access for as little as $1 a month. If a subscription isn't your thing, but you would still like to help, you can make a donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Logan M., Tracy B., Tiffany C., Ashley S., John L., Daniel S., Leslie F., and Tin S. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, going annual, or making a PayPal contribution. I also need to provide you with this warning. These episodes may contain graphic details including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for this story include the book All He Slash She Wanted by Aphrodite Jones, as well as online articles and court documents, all of which are listed in the show notes. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. If you haven't listened to the first three parts of this series, you may want to pause this episode and go back and listen to episodes 226, 227, and 228 first and then come back to this so you'll be caught up. Last time we left off at the end of October of 1993 in Brandon's timeline. Brandon was still very much hung up on Gina, but he was trying to distract himself with a new relationship with the young girl named Daphne. And to an extent, also with her best friend, Lindsay. But just like Brandon was trying to fill a void, these girls were also doing the same. Brandon was still committing acts of fraud, taking money from other people's bank accounts, and his ongoing attempts to try and please the friends and the ladies in his life. I stated towards the end of Part 3 that Brandon was in the midst of a series of events and friendships that would lead him to make the move an hour and a half away to the small town of Humboldt, Nebraska. From there, Brandon's days would be numbered. We will pick up the story from there. The girl Brandon had been distracting himself with to try and keep his mind off of Gina, Daphne. Daphne would say that Brandon was an important part of her life. They had been together so much and had gone through so much. She could depend on Brandon. He was there for her. And she never wanted to see anything bad ever happen to him. Especially when it came to people who were intolerant of anybody who was different. Daphne was protective of Brandon. But at the same time, her friends not only believed that she only had Brandon around to use him for money. None of them believed for a minute that she was pregnant, which she had been going around telling people. They also didn't believe that Brandon was the father. But people close to the couple they really didn't like the way that she used and manipulated Brandon. In fact, another one of Brandon's ex-girlfriends, Rihanna, decided that she wanted to give Daphne a piece of her mind. And she recruited, ironically, those twin sisters I mentioned in the last episode who used to bully Brandon into helping her go and bully Daphne. I brought them up earlier in the story I hadn't mentioned them by their last names, only by their first names, but their last names was Bin Blossoms. So they're the Bin Blossom twins. Anyway, the twin sisters stayed outside while Rihanna went inside Brandon's trailer to have a talk with him. Rihanna first wanted to tell Brandon that his mom had come to see her and explained what was going on with him. She said that Joanne told her the whole story that she, quote, knows what he is. And Brandon, I guess he was trying to play dumb because he was like, WTF, are you talking about? And Rihanna said, your mom told me. Brandon just played it off like he had no idea what she was talking about. So she finally just dropped the whole subject and went back outside with the twins. Just then, Daphne had arrived home with another one of her friends, who resided in Humboldt named Carrie Gross. So Rihanna decided to lash out at Daphne just as she arrived. She approached her, told her she was nothing more than an effing lesbian and everybody knows that she's full of it and all the games that she's playing are a bunch of BS. They started to threaten to kick Daphne's ass and while Daphne wanted to know how they were so sure about her being a lesbian when all of them were still in the closet themselves. So, this is basically just an argument between these girls going back and forth, calling each other lesbians. And this argument carried on for a few minutes, but Daphne would later say that Rihanna and the Bin Blossom twins, what were their names again? Bin Blossom, yeah. Bin Blossom. I don't know why I want to say Beelzebub. But anyway, Daphne's story later on would be that Rihanna and the twins were there to beat up Brandon because he had stolen money from Rihanna's brother, Alan. But Daphne would deny that Brandon ever took any money from Alan because he had been stealing from her friend Lindsay's dad. Honestly, dreamers, I don't think anybody's pocketbook was safe around Brandon, especially if anybody welcomed him into their home or let him crash on their sofa. Eventually, this kerfuffle between these girls escalated to a point where a knife was produced. Daphne ended up with kind of a superficial cut. It wasn't very deep or very serious. I don't even know if she went to the hospital. But Rihanna ended up being taken into custody for that and spent a few days in juvenile hall. Daphne had also obtained an order of protection against her, even though Brandon told her that she didn't need to do that. Because ultimately... Brandon wanted the girls to patch things up, and he actually managed to get that to happen, sort of. Rihanna and Daphne did speak, but it took a lot of convincing on Brandon's part to get that to happen. But you know, their problems weren't really with one another. When you get down to the heart of the matter, it was mainly about Brandon, and he knew that, which is why he wanted there to be peace amongst all of his female friends, ex-girlfriends or otherwise. He didn't like it when there was conflict. He was the type of person that just wanted people to get along. Things were, however, slowly deteriorating all around Brandon when it came to his circle of friends. One by one, they were starting to get in trouble. The local police department were getting to know these kids and young adults and they didn't like it and the police were keeping a close eye on everybody. Rihanna had that short stint in juvenile hall Then in the middle of November, Daphne was arrested and detained in the county jail for seven days. When she was finally released, Brandon went to go get her. They talked and decided that they needed a change of scenery. They needed to get out of Dodge for a while until the heat died down. So they decided that the best thing for them to do would be to go and stay with Daphne's friend Carrie Gross out at her place in Humboldt. They didn't know each other that well, Or for very long even but carrie for some reason took to daphne and she catered to her like most of daphne's other friends had been so daphne knew that they would be able to go and lay low at her place until things calmed down now dreamers i don't know what the state of nebraska is like i've never been there and if i have it was only passing through because my parents when i was young Loved taking cross-country road trips. I might have gone through the state. I don't know. We tended to stay more south than that, I believe. My dad was born in Indiana. I don't know. Is Indiana part of the Midwest? It could be. I'm. It's kind of fuzzy to me. I'm not quite sure. But I do know that he was raised in Michigan. And once he found his way to California when he joined the Navy... He never wanted to go back. He spent the rest of his life in California, and if he traveled, he stayed mostly in the southern half of the United States. I don't think we ever went any further north than Interstate 40. And that would take us, I'd say, about a state and a half south of Nebraska. So, My dad left Michigan when he was about 17 or 18, and he never wanted to live anywhere where it snowed ever again. Anyway, to me, from what I've read and seen and studied about the area, it seems like there are a lot of quaint small town vibes, but all of that is relative. Apparently Carrie being from Humboldt, she was kind of a country yokel since they're they're all from the big city of Lincoln. Carrie was a little bit naive, so when Daphne introduced Brandon as her brother, Carrie just took her at face value. Daphne pretty much had Carrie wrapped around her little finger, just like she had Brandon on her other little finger. Staying with her in Humboldt was not going to be a problem at all. So they thought. The evening before Daphne and Brandon were set to head to Humboldt, Rihanna had come over to share some pizzas and pop, or soda, or whatever y'all call it from wherever y'all are from. They also watched a movie together. Rihanna wasn't sure why they had decided to go to Humboldt, but she knew that she was going to miss Brandon a lot. And she didn't want him to go, and she made him promise her that he would keep in touch later on she would say that she would only ever hear from brandon one last time and it was a short phone call and not much was said beyond hello and goodbye humboldt was described as a town frozen in time i googled some images and i'd say that seems pretty accurate the population today is 810 almost 30 years ago when the story took place it was just over a thousand people. And I don't imagine that Humboldt has changed all that much. The town square looks pretty similar as it did in the black and white pictures from the early 20th century that I found online. It is still a farming community, as is much of the state of Nebraska is, with its main crops being corn, hence the nickname the Cornhusker State. But It does look like Humboldt has numerous animal farms, cattle, things like that. I saw a donkey farm. It looks really pretty. And Nebraska is a big state. It's 16th in size by area, 37th in size by population, with a total of about 1,961,000 people. I looked at some of the houses on the market. They're cheap. They're dated. But they're cute. And they're very quaint. The one thing it doesn't look like is it doesn't look like there's very much to do, especially if you're a young person like Brandon, who loved having a social life. But he wasn't there to have a social life. At least he should have tried to stay away from it for a bit. He was there to lay low, to let the heat from the law enforcement die down a little bit. And Humboldt seemed like the perfect place to be able to do that. If you wanted to go bar hopping or out for an evening on the town, you'd have to go to some of the neighboring cities and possibly even a neighboring state. it just so happened that when Brandon and Daphne got there in late 1993, winter had arrived early and it was harsh. Snow had blanketed everything as far as the eye could see. So it was basically big, wide, open, flat, barren, and frozen in every direction. Carrie drove Brandon and Daphne to a small three-bedroom farmhouse just on the edge of Humboldt where Lisa Lambert lived with her baby Tanner. She only paid $125 a month in rent, So she often let friends stay with her for very little money or even for free. Carrie sometimes stayed there along with her boyfriend, Mike. And Lisa was more than happy to help out Carrie's friends in their time of need. She really longed for the company. Lisa Lambert was a pretty dirty blonde with bluish greenish eyes. And those were one of her most prominent features, her beautiful eyes. In part one, I stated Lisa was 22 years old. I couldn't figure out where I got the information from. I'm pretty sure I didn't just pull it out of my ass, but that is incorrect. She was actually 24 at the time when Brandon and Daphne arrived in Humboldt and her son Tanner was seven months old. I believe that in the book, All He Slash She Wanted, a lot of the dates are off. I've come to discover that as I've compared to the things I've found online. Anyway, Lisa had recently just begun to settle down. She had moved into that farmhouse with her son, and when she met Brandon, she immediately took a liking to him, like most people tended to do. At first, Lisa thought that maybe he was a little bit too young for her in terms of boyfriend material. I mean, at the time, he was turning 21 that December, so he was about two and a half years younger than Lisa. But as usual, Brandon just had that charm and magnetism about him that just washed away any doubts or preconceived notions that people would have about him as it pertained to his age because he did have such a baby face. Lisa liked that he was on the small side. He was lean, he was fit, and of course, he was totally cute. But... What Lisa really came to adore about Brandon was the way that he got on with Tanner. Brandon was a natural when it came to being around children. And, you know, that can very easily win over the affections of a single mom pretty quickly. Brandon was also a very welcome distraction from a relationship that Lisa wasn't quite over yet. That she had had with carrie's brother and his name was shane gross he had kind of been with lisa for all the wrong reasons he sort of just used her and left her after they had broken up or stopped seeing each other lisa met a new guy named troy newburn and they ended up getting pregnant and troy decided that he didn't want any part of it so he bailed Lisa was pretty much done with men at that point when Brandon waltzed into her life. Maybe it's just me, dreamers, but it's starting to sound like walking out on your kids was the standard thing to do in this small town area. Nearly everybody that we've talked about is being raised by either a single mom or a mom and her boyfriend, maybe a stepdad here or there. I mean, I get it. My daughter's dad wasn't around, and she had a stepdad, but i tell you, I wouldn't have walked out on my relationship with Evelyn's dad if it weren't for his addiction problems, but still, it's like everybody in this story is raising everybody else's kids except their own. I mean, everybody. All these men that walked out on their biological children, it feels like they're running away only to end up having more kids with different women or raising the kids whose own dads are off raising other people's kids too. It's so strange, but uh, I guess that's the way things go. The grass is always greener, right? Anyway, it was kind of odd timing because as soon as Brandon started staying with Lisa and Tanner, right after he got there, Lisa fell violently ill. She was already a pretty thin girl, so when she got sick, she really started looking pretty gaunt. She worked as a patient care assistant at a local nursing home, so her coworkers were really concerned when they noticed the already very skinny Lisa started looking even skinnier. By the time she went to the hospital, she had gone from 95 pounds or 43 kilograms to 86 pounds or 39 kilograms. Turns out she had a severe case of the flu. So she was grateful to have an extra set of hands around to help out with Tanner. Lisa very much embraced motherhood. Her parents had divorced when she was pretty young, and her dad moved away to be with another woman, and she didn't see much of him growing up. And her mom, Anna May, I mentioned her in part one, she was not happy to find out that her daughter was pregnant with a child that she deemed to be illegitimate. Anna May didn't hide her disappointment from Lisa and expressed how. She wanted so much more for her out of life. She never wanted Lisa to end up a single mom. Anime was critical and overbearing, and you never knew what direction Anime was coming from with each day. There would be times when she totally poo-pooed on the idea of Lisa having a baby, and then in the next minute, she would be all right with it. Then another day, she'd be totally embarrassed and ashamed that her daughter was an unwed mother who got knocked up after a one or two night stand. But of course, when Tanner came along, Anna May's tune changed and she fell madly in love with her grandbaby boy. She was there every step of the way, from the delivery to bringing him home. Anna May doted on him. She threw him a baby shower after he was born. But even though she embraced grandmotherhood, It still didn't make things easier between mom and daughter. Fortunately for Lisa, Anna Mae lived about 20 minutes away in Pawnee City. I hope I said that right. If I didn't, you can correct me, get on social media and tell me how wrong I am. Anyway, she was close enough to be helpful, but just far away enough to just stay out of her hair. So if Anna Mae wanted to give Lisa the business about something or nag her or criticize her, she had to resort to doing it over the phone instead of getting on her case in person. anime apparently hounded Lisa about being unfit to raise Tanner being a terrible mom. She complained about anything and everything that she could think of when it came to her parenting. She would tell Lisa that she was a huge disappointment. She was a total letdown sounds kind of relatable to me on a personal level, from my own experiences, I'd bet that there is absolutely nothing that Lisa could do right, nor was there anything that she could do that would please her mom or come close to living up to her mom's standards. I was actually having the same talk with my own daughter a few days ago. She had visited me last week, which is why I kind of fell behind. That's why you didn't hear from me for about two weeks after I put out those two episodes at the beginning of June. My daughter was here for a week and we talked about my mom. And you know, over my life, I've had a variety of jobs before settling into teaching preschool. I worked in retail management. I worked as a barista. But beyond that, after I stopped working at preschool and began providing childcare in-home privately, I stopped telling my mom what I was doing for a living because she would constantly nag me about finding a quote unquote real job, work in an office, work at a desk, work in a cubicle, learn to type on a typewriter. That's how old fashioned my mom was. Those were the things that my mom thought was a real job. And that just isn't me. It's not my daughter either. She's not the type of person that likes to sit at a desk. I mean, now I spend a great deal of time sitting at a desk writing this podcast. There was something that told me that that still wouldn't be good enough for my mom. So I just stopped giving her any material to work with as much as I could and put her on a need to know basis. It was the only way that I could protect myself. It didn't stop the criticisms and the beratings, but the less my mom knew, the harder it was to come up with stuff to pick on. So meeting Brandon for Lisa, it was such a breath of fresh air. To hear so much positivity coming from him brandon was always so nice and he had really uplifting things to say and it made her feel so much better about herself as a woman and a mother brandon thought lisa was the best mom ever he thought that she did everything so well and it all seemed to come so naturally to her and he admired that and for brandon's part He adored how much Lisa adored Tanner. It was the kinds of unconditional expressions of love that he longed for himself. At least, that's my opinion. And Lisa was equally as complimentary about Brandon as he was about her. That he was a natural with Tanner and that she loved having him around and she enjoyed spending time with him and hanging out and watching TV. And he was such a good listener and she was so glad to have him staying with her. Before Tanner had come along, in some ways, Lisa kind of lived the way Brandon had been living, constantly chasing after something bigger and better than small-town Nebraska. Lisa had even uprooted herself from Nebraska and moved out west to Phoenix, Arizona, searching for some fun and excitement. But she was very happy being back in Nebraska when she did go back. She grew up in Pawnee City, which isn't too far from Humboldt. And she basically knew everybody in town. Life was quiet and exciting and slow paced. And that's how she liked it now that she was a mom. She was no longer worried about chasing fun or guys. She'd have to bring Tanner along with her everywhere. And she just didn't want to have to do that. And then there was one particular afternoon while Lisa and Brandon were talking that he brought up not just being a stepdad to Tanner, but actually adopting him as his own son. At that point, Lisa was certain that Brandon was the right guy to have in her life and Tanner's and for Brandon, it would be a way to fulfill that need that he had to become a dad and a parent without actually having to go through the process of getting pregnant and all that stuff, and not really having to reveal the truth about his gender identity. Tanner had a rough go at life from day one. He came into the world two months early, barely weighing in at four pounds or 1.81 kilograms. He had to be kept in an incubator for the first seven days of his life. But after he got home, he continued to suffer from some respiratory issues. Lisa definitely had a lot on her plate and that's really hard for a first time mom. I'm actually dealing with that now with the toddler that I've been babysitting for the last six months. I've told you, some of you who are in the Facebook discussion group, that I do that part time. Uh, through word of mouth, this mom here in Henderson, Nevada um, found me and asked me if I would be willing to babysit her child a couple days out of the week. She's a really good kid. She's easy to care for, but she has been sick a lot in her life, and she just barely turned two on June 9th. First, when she was born, both she and her mom had covid She has this susceptibility to strep throat and she's had it eight times in the last year and it causes her mom so much stress and anxiety. There was even one time after I started working for this family that I went to California. So she had to resort to going to daycare for the first time and on day one, she got sick and now the mom never wants her to go to daycare again. I say that she's easy to care for because she's got a very easygoing personality She eats really, really good. She eats healthy. She eats a lot. She sleeps well. I mean, for me, it's easy. But I have had to take her to several doctor's appointments. And just this last week, I had to be off because she had hand, foot, and mouth, which is something that you normally get in daycare, and she's not in daycare. But because of her birthday and family flying in, um, her two-and-a-half-year-old cousin came in and had this rash all over her face, and they didn't know what it was her mom thought it was a food allergy they tried keeping the kids apart but she ended up getting it about a week later so I wasn't around her I didn't get it mom didn't get it dad didn't get it thank goodness but I mean that was just another thing you know on the mom's plate this kid is sick so much she cries over this this is their first child so it's very stressful tons of doctors visits antibiotics, blood tests. I've taken her to doctor's appointments. It's rough. And she has her husband. This is their only kid. And all four grandparents live within driving distance, within just five or ten minutes away. So imagine Lisa Lambert's situation with baby Tanner, living out in a farmhouse in a rural area, in the middle of nowhere, with a baby that's sick all the time. I don't think that this mom that I work for could deal with it at all. But anyway, Tanner, for the most part, was a good baby. He was a great eater. He was getting big. He was getting strong. But he was a little bit whiny and he had some health issues. And by now you know what Brandon Tina is like and what his personality is like. And the novelty of being around a baby Kind of started to wear on him, especially because Tanner could be whiny and a little bit of a fuss budget. And that can really get on somebody's last nerve, which is exactly the reason why I started listening to podcasts in the first place when I began taking care of kids. My first job as a child care provider for a family involved three toddlers at first. They were two siblings and their cousin, their moms were sisters. And then one of the moms had two more kids over the course of the three years that I worked for them from 2013 through 2016. And it was sometime in 2014 that my nerves and my ears could no longer take the chaos. And I used to watch crime shows on TV constantly at home. So it's not really kid-friendly viewing and I couldn't exactly turn on the TV and be watching Investigation Discovery or you know, all these murder shows. And I'd been hearing about podcasts, so I started listening. And thus, my ear holes were filled with the delightful sounds of death and murder and mayhem instead of whiny, crying, bickering babies. But anyway, Brandon never said that he was getting tired of Tanner crying and boohooing all the time. But Lisa could tell that it was wearing on him. And Brandon did start going out with some of the guy friends that he had met eventually brandon would be gone more often than he was at home and lisa wasn't seeing as much of him as when he had first moved in lisa's ex-boyfriend shane was also at her house pretty often as well since his sister carrie stayed there occasionally but he was still kind of on again off again with lisa but for the most part they stayed on friendly terms Shane was seeing a girl named Michelle who lived in Falls City, which is about a half hour away. And there was a little bit more to do there than there was in Humboldt. Brandon and Daphne and remember, Lisa is thinking that they're brother and sister. They started going with Shane to Falls City to hang out too. Even though Brandon was quite smitten with Lisa, he never really stopped looking. He liked the attention that he got from women. There were times when Shane and Brandon would go out on their own to some gas station that apparently doubled as a popular hangout, I guess. That doesn't sound like fun, nor does it sound like much of a thing. In fact, in California, it sounds like something the manager would call the cops on you for, which is loitering. In Aphrodite Jones's book, she called the gas station the best place in town to see and be seen. So, okay, the gas station hangout. Now, in the beginning, I was under the impression that Brandon moved to Humboldt around his 21st birthday, which was December 12th, but it sounds like it may have been closer to the end of November. I really like dates when I tell you about these cases because I really like transporting all of us to that time and place, but that's what's missing from many aspects of this particular story there aren't always exact dates when it comes to Brandon's various moves and various girlfriends. And some of the dates have been mixed up from what I found online versus what I'm seeing in Jones's book. So in all, it sounds like Brandon may have been in Humboldt for about a month or maybe five weeks. And when I say all of this happened really fast, it was very, very fast. Meeting new people, moving in with someone that Brandon didn't know, making friends and starting to join them at the gas station hangout. I mean, he didn't waste any time. Oh, and the gas station is called the Quick Shop or the Quick Stop, one or the other, and it's spelled K-W-I-K. And this being apparently one of the coldest winters ever in Nebraska, it really doesn't sound like a good time at all. But to each their own. In the first few days of December, Brandon ended up meeting a friend of Michelle's named Kelly Rue. Kelly was still in high school, but she was instantly crazy about Brandon. He looked so much younger than his age of 20, almost 21. So him being an adult and her being not an adult was neither here nor there for Kelly or for Brandon. You know, he never really seemed to have those boundaries in place. He told Kelly that his name was Tenor Ray Brandon. But to simplify everything, she could just call him Brandon. So, so much for his promise that he had made to Gina about getting honest and upfront with people from the start. He's still not being completely genuine, but I don't really have all that much of a problem with it, at least in the beginning when you first meet somebody. I mean, Brandon, he seemed like he was looking to have a serious girlfriend, but at the same time, he never really wasn't looking for other girls to date. That was probably just something that he told Gina, along with many, many other promises that he made that he really wasn't going to keep or was going to be able to keep. And as far as telling somebody on the first time that you meet them that you're transgender, it's just not that simple or that easy. But anyway, Brandon took Kelly to the skate rink, which was actually located in the state of Missouri in the city of St. Joseph, which was about, or is about 45 miles away from where they all lived. While they did have a great time and Kelly was really, really liking Brandon a lot. She did find out that he had a thing going on with Lisa Lambert. So she immediately backed off. And the reason is because Kelly and Lisa had known each other for a very long time and were really great friends and Kelly did not want to jeopardize their friendship. But Kelly did notice that Brandon and Lisa weren't really getting along all that well in the days following their skate date. So Kelly didn't back off completely, even though I think she should have. I mean, I don't know if friendship and dating etiquette is different in small towns because of the limited number of people there are. But usually dating a guy that your best friend is dating is something to be avoided. I don't know. Again, different strokes for different folks. If Brandon and Lisa got into a spat, he would end up spending the night with his new friends in Fall City. And he spent most of his time going out and partying and dating and whatever it was that Brandon enjoyed doing. What got Lisa extra mad was that Brandon would leave, but he would use her car most of the time. He would be 30 minutes away over in Fall City, and then he would just come back whenever he wanted, often in the middle of the night. So Brandon, I mean, he had this charming and sweet way about him, and he had a way with people and making friends, but it feels like he always had, like, an ulterior motive, you know? And he may have liked Lisa, and he may have loved Tanner, but it felt like Brandon would be wherever was most convenient for him in any given moment. Eventually, Brandon began pursuing a more serious relationship with Kelly instead of Lisa. He had become more interested in the high school party girl as opposed to the 24-year-old single mom who preferred staying in and watching a movie. And the more he gravitated towards Kelly, the more that he and Lisa fought. Eventually, Brandon began moving his things out of Lisa's home and into Michelle's, who was Shane's girlfriend, who lived in Falls City, And that was much closer to Kelly. I know all of this sounds super convoluted and complicated and getting into all this minutia of Brandon's love life. But it's important, at least to me in the timeline and the sequence of events as to how Brandon ended up where he ended up. Anyway, while Brandon began pulling away from Lisa and Humboldt, Daphne was kind of starting to be over the whole thing. In the meantime, by early December, Brandon was hanging out with Kelly more and he was depending on her to get around, mainly because Lisa was refusing to let Brandon take her car anymore because he had crashed it. I'm not sure if he was legally drunk or not, but he did have an open container for which he received a citation. Sort of. You see, when he got into the accident, he gave the officer at the scene a driver's license that belonged to a cousin of his named Charles Brayman. And fortunately, I guess, fortunately, Brandon managed to get away with that. Not fortunate for his cousin, though. Brandon had a court date on December 15th, which he showed up for, and it seemed like he just needed to pay a fine or something like that. But just two days after the court date, Brandon was pulled over for speeding, and he again used his cousin's driver's license. It was after that speeding ticket that Lisa had had enough of him screwing around in her car and refused to allow him to drive it anymore. One evening, Brandon and Kelly took a drive in her car to Brandon's hometown of Lincoln, which is almost two hours away, right? And while he was there, he didn't bother visiting his mom or his sister, which doesn't surprise me. He did stop at a payphone and he called them real quick and that was at a payday loan business where I believe Brandon may have cashed a bad check or written a forged check. I'm not exactly clear what he was doing there. But when he was done, he gave Kelly a tour of Lincoln and showed her some of the places that he had hoped to take her out on some future dates. He also showed Kelly this really big, beautiful home. Not quite a mansion, but pretty close by his standards. And he told Kelly that that's where his grandparents lived it was in just about one of the nicest neighborhoods in lincoln but of course that wasn't true however his lie did serve its purpose because kelly was totally dazzled by it all the last stop that they made on this tour of lincoln was at a store where brandon had run in and he bought three single roses one to give to kelly and the other two for carrie and lisa he stopped real quick to see Lindsay and daphne also that took less than five minutes when he presented kelly with the flower he told her that he wanted her to be his girlfriend she was unsure about it but she eventually admitted to him that evening that she had not had sex with anyone yet and she explained to him that she was waiting for the right man and brandon told her yep that's a totally good idea and he was completely on board with waiting Lisa had a hard time dealing with whatever her place in Brandon's life was. She expressed her love for him in a long letter that she wrote. That she wanted him in her life because he meant so much to her and Tanner. And as usual, things had moved along so quickly. Lisa was convinced it was the doing of others, talking him out of being with her that was the problem. And she tried urging him to not listen to anybody else. Don't let others come between them. She said that she was sorry that him spending so much time going out to hang out with friends in Fall City as opposed to hanging out with her made her so upset that she envied his freedom to run off and do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Lisa blamed Brandon's desire to be there in Fall City with a whole brand new set of friends for being the reason that there was a wedge between them. And she was truthful she had wished that he had never gone to Fall City in the first place. She tried going there with him a couple of times, but she always felt like the odd person out, like his fun was limited because of her presence. But most importantly, she wanted to know what she could do or change or do differently that would help mend things between them. If she had made mistakes, she wanted Brandon to tell her. She wanted his help to understand so she could make the changes and that things could improve between them. Brandon's birthday was coming up in the following week, and she wanted to know what plans, if any, he had. Because whatever it was that he wanted to do, she wanted to join him. She also told him that as far as everyone else who shared her house was concerned, even though they were pissed off at him because of the way that he had treated her, she had spoken to them and everything was okay. There wouldn't be a problem with anyone living there with them, that he didn't have to be worried about coming back home. So basically, Lisa poured her heart out in this letter in the hopes of fixing things, getting back to how they had started off in the beginning. It's clear that Brandon, despite all of his shortcomings, had the stronghold on the emotions of the women in his life. That just had them falling all over themselves to be with him. I don't know why Brandon had a hard time settling on just one. I guess perhaps he enjoyed all of the attention from girls getting all goo goo gaga over him. Maybe quantity was the priority over quality or Brandon was just always searching for something perhaps filling a void that was really huge and difficult to fill. Or it could have been as simple as just wanting to sow his wild oats until he was ready to settle down, and he just wasn't there yet. He tried convincing several women that he was, but his actions indicated otherwise. Lisa had finished her letter to Brandon by telling him that she was physically ill over their breakup, and she pleaded with him to come back to her, that they could work through this, they just needed to talk. All she wanted And all she needed to start to begin to feel better was for her to pick up her phone and hear his voice on the other end of the line. When Brandon received Lisa's letter, he didn't go running back to Humboldt, nor did he even really run to a phone and call her immediately. I mean, the fact was, Brandon was messing with Lisa. He was messing with her feelings. He was running his game, doing whatever it is that he did and it was angering lisa's friends especially carrie and remember carrie was good friends with daphne the girl that brandon moved to humboldt with and also friends with lisa who had dated carrie's brother shane and i know this is all over the place i'm sorry and i'm having a hard time keeping up with all of the ladies in brandon's life at this point in time too carrie also wrote brandon a letter giving him a hard time about the games that he was playing demanding that he stop all this nonsense and have a little bit of respect and compassion for lisa especially considering how she was there for him when he needed a place to lay low she told brandon that tanner hadn't been feeling well so it was kind of messed up that he had all but stopped coming around spending all of his time in fall city acting a fool after all what was all that bs about wanting to adopt tanner in the first place those were his words that's what he had said if that were to have ever happened He certainly wouldn't be able to just up and run off with his friends whenever he didn't feel like being there for Tanner and Lisa. Carrie also gave Brandon the business about having attempted to give Lisa the ring that he had once given to Gina. Yeah, he did that. Remember, Brandon purchased that ring for Gina using the credit card that he had stolen from Gina and ultimately she gave it back to him even though she technically paid for it herself. Carrie questioned what the hell that was all about. And if he really wanted to give Lisa a promise ring, then do it. But make sure it's not the ring that he had given to Gina. You know, this is the small town kind of stuff. And everybody knew about his undying love for Gina. Everybody knows everybody's business and everything that Brandon had gone through in September through November, begging Gina to take him back to no avail. And everybody knew that Brandon continued to carry a torch for Gina because when he moved to Humboldt, He brought a scrapbook full of pictures and memories that he had had with her. Everywhere that he lived, he had this picture book or scrapbook or photo album with him. He had pictures from that big party that he had thrown at the Harvest Hotel. That was an engagement party. He had tons of photos from that night, him in his tuxedo, him down on bended knee, the whole thing. And Brandon constantly talked about the things that, He did wrong in his relationship with Gina, and Lisa was willing to listen to Brandon as he poured his heart out about how badly he messed up that relationship. It always felt like to her that he needed to get these things off his chest, even though it might have been difficult to listen to. However, Lisa's letter did tug at Brandon's heartstrings, and he felt bad for the way that he had treated her. He eventually got in touch with her and told her that they would spend his birthday together. He wanted to spend it in Fall City, and she was all for it. In fact, she was going to make plans to surprise him with the party the weekend of his 21st birthday. All of his friends would be there, along with an endless supply of beers and pizzas. Well, when you have a lot of friends, lots of lady friends, you run the risk of more than one of them Deciding to throw you a party, especially if they really like you and while one of them threw a party for Brandon Earlier in the day of his actual birth date December 12th 1993 which fell on a Sunday that year and Lisa attended that party and she stood by Quietly while just about every single female at the party gave Brandon a big old wet birthday kiss Messy rose kisses apparently Lisa took it in stride after all this was his 21st birthday i wouldn't be okay with that if brandon was my boyfriend but uh, whatever in addition to that it seemed to be understood that lisa and brandon were an item they described him as being kind of a pervert like most guys apparently so i guess to some this type of behavior was acceptable so yeah okay dreamers in case you've lost count Well, I think my official count sits at seven girlfriends that Brandon had been officially committed to, maybe loosely committed to at some points. I guess you could say, starting in the summer of 1988, when he was with Tracy, then he went from Tracy to Heather, Rihanna, Gina, Daphne, Lisa, and Kelly. That's seven girlfriends in five years. I've been keeping a chart as we're going along here, so... I will be able to call Roll occasionally just to remind ourselves of all the various ladies that loved Brandon. Brandon was enjoying himself so much the afternoon and evening of his birthday that when everyone was getting ready to head back to Humboldt and leave Fall City, he didn't want to go despite the fact that at least a half dozen of his friends were headed there including Lisa. who seemed to be the one that everyone understood was Brandon's official date for the evening, even though Brandon was getting busy and friendly with all the ladies. It's almost like Brandon had his own personal harem and was, like, loving every minute of it. Rather than joining his friends and Lisa, Brandon wanted Lisa to take him to Lana Tisdale's house. Brandon became acquainted with Lana the week prior to his birthday. I talked about Lana and her older sister, Leslie, and their mother, Linda, and their aunt, Missy, back in part one. Brandon told Lisa he'd get a ride back to her house later on that night. Lisa was so upset because her surprise party goers were all at her place, waiting for her to get there with Brandon. What's worse, not only did he not show up later that evening for her surprise party, He never showed up at all that night. Lana Tisdell would eventually be Brandon's eighth and final girlfriend slash love interest. When Lisa got home, she was so angry and she decided to take a chance to try and get in touch with Brandon. So she tried calling the payphone that was located at the Quick Stop gas station hangout that I talked about earlier. And just her luck, Lana Tisdell picked up the phone. Lisa started going off on Lana, telling her that she was just another girl that Brandon was trying to play games with. But Lana ended up hanging up on her and told Brandon what had just happened. So Brandon picked up the phone and got Lisa back on the line and told her to mind her own business. But Lisa told Brandon that she didn't call the payphone, nor did she ever speak to Lana. A shouting match over the phone ensued until Lisa became so infuriated in front of all of her party guests that she threw the phone across the room. It was very unusual for the typically even-tempered Lisa to lose her cool like that. And guys can do that to you. Bring out the worst in the women that they mess around with. Anyway, Kelly, Another, the other young woman mixed up in Brandon's love hexagon, She called a payphone to give Brandon a piece of her mind and to tell him that it would be best if he came to the birthday party that they had for him, but he flat out refused. Then that caused Daphne to blow a gasket and she ended up going out to Lisa's car to look for some paperwork that she knew that Brandon had hidden underneath the driver's seat of, of the vehicle. She found an envelope that contained several traffic tickets and legal court documents And this pack of angry girlfriends gathered around the dining room table to see what all these papers were about. And when they did take a look at the various traffic citations, that's when they first noticed that the tickets were written to Tina Renee Brandon and that his sex was listed as female. As stated, Brandon had met Lana Tisdale about a week before his birthday He had stopped in at some karaoke bar in Fall City to have a drink and watch some of the singers, and Lana happened to be one of them. As soon as she got on the stage and began singing, Brandon was immediately taken with how incredibly sexy she looked and sounded. When it came to her looks, her face, her eyes, her hair, her striking features, her slender frame. He was just enthralled and he had to meet this girl, but he kind of did it in a creeper sort of stalkerish kind of a way. When Lana and her friends were finished at the karaoke bar, Brandon nonchalantly got up and followed them out to the parking lot. As they drove off, they never noticed Brandon was following them or driving behind them. They ended up at the quick shop and Brandon looked on as everyone in the car went inside the convenience store except for Lana who decided to wait in the vehicle along with a friend of hers named Rhonda McKenzie. I also mentioned her in part one of the series. She was a girlfriend of one of the main characters in the story, John Loder. So remember those two people, Rhonda McKenzie and John Loder. Brandon walked over to the car and he tapped on the window. He leaned in and told Lana that he was hoping to find her. And she was kind of puzzled and asked what for. That's about as smooth as Brandon could get in the moment because His answer was, I don't know. He said he wanted to talk to her because he wanted to know her name. She said her name was Lana. He asked her if she would step outside and speak to him for a moment, but she hesitated. Brandon's game kicked back in and he said that he had been at the karaoke bar for the past few weeks and he couldn't help but notice how good of a singer that she was and he wanted to meet her. Lana said that she couldn't recall ever having seen him But he said that he had definitely seen her. He couldn't miss her because of how beautiful she was and that he was sure that she gets told that all the time. And she said, well, not really. Brandon told her that she was the most beautiful girl that he had ever seen in Fall City and that he wanted to take her out on a date. She asked his name. He said, Brandon. She asked him his age. He said, almost 21. She said she'd think about it, and he told her to think about it right then and there and asked her if she had any plans that night. Lana was unsure at first because she thought Brandon looked female. But when he talked, he sounded like a guy. But Lana absolutely loved his youthful face. She thought he was so cute, sharp dresser. He was very gentlemanly, nothing like all the other guys in town. It didn't take long for Lana to agree to go hang out with Brandon that same night. Lana's mom, Linda, finally emerged from the quick shop. She had bought some bags of ice that they needed. And from there, they all went to the Tisdale home, which was just a couple minutes away. Brandon was invited inside. He had some snacks and some beers. And Lana kept pretty busy attending to the other guests at this gathering that they were having. And among the guests were Linda's half-sister, Missy. And her date that night was Tom Nissen. John Lauder was there also. And those are definitely two names that you're going to want to remember. Tom Nissen and John Lauder. John Lauder had actually been a frequent guest at the Tisdale home. He had known Lana and her family for a really long time. And they were pretty much like family. So that's how John was connected to Lana, and then Lana connected to Brandon. For their part, Lana's sister, Lindsay, and her mom, Linda, they really warmed up to Brandon pretty quickly. He had that personality, like I've said, that people found really charming and likable, and they liked him for Lana, much better than the guys that she usually dated. Remember, Brandon had a couple of girlfriends that he was interested in lingering around on the back burner, but that didn't really matter much to him. He was instantly taken with Lana, and the feeling was quite mutual. Brandon was apparently working on putting some distance between himself and Lisa, probably looking for the next place to couch surf to along with another girl to fawn over him. But by the following evening, Brandon and Lana had already begun getting intimate with one another, kissing, just generally getting physical, but not too carried away. At the time, Lana was 19 years old, and of all the girls and women that Brandon had been with thus far, Lana was by far the most experienced one when it came to sex. In Aphrodite Jones' book, she described them as having started sleeping together in pretty short order, and that Brandon was the best lover that Lana had ever been with. What exactly that means, and how far things went, is kind of vague at this point. However, Brandon was so into Lana, they were together constantly, almost right from the start. And when they weren't together, Brandon could not stop thinking about her. So now you can see how all these little things that Brandon had done and the various directions that he chose and the people that he encountered, how it all leads up to what would ultimately happen. Brandon had a court date a couple of days after his birthday, for which he was a no-show. He had entered a guilty plea a year and a half earlier, and a part of the deal was he needed to check in in person. His conviction was a Class 4 felony, which from my understanding means that it could be classified as a felony or a misdemeanor, but they ended up giving him the felony conviction. So he was violated by his probation officer for failing to report in person seven times violating the order to not use or have in his possession any alcohol. He was supposed to have gotten his GED within a year, which he didn't do. And he was to complete a treatment program at the mental health center, which he also failed to comply with because his therapist had terminated his treatment plan because Brandon often canceled appointments, didn't show up, and stated that the only reason he was going to therapy was because he was ordered to do so by the court. It was also reported by the therapist that Brandon regularly failed to follow through on rescheduling treatment sessions, and because he had told so many different stories and untruths that it was difficult to tell which stories were to be believed, and this essentially deemed the treatment ineffective. The therapist also found that Brandon failed to take responsibility for his actions and was only interested in getting by in life and also showed little to no interest in his personal development and growth going back to august of 1993 brandon had failed to appear for an arraignment on a motion that was filed that would have revoked his probation and he didn't show up so it was put back on the calendar for a couple of weeks later but brandon failed to show up again so the judge issued a warrant for his arrest and he was taken into custody on september 3rd 1993. A hearing was set for a week later, but then it was continued for a second time to October 14th. Meanwhile, Brandon kept busy by penning letters to the judge with a litany of excuses for his actions and requesting more extensions. At some point, Brandon was released, but the conditions of that and how it came to be is unclear. Either he was given bail or let out on his own recognizance. His case was held over to December 14th, But Brandon had again failed to appear, call or write to the court. So this time a warrant was issued and all law enforcement agencies across the state of Nebraska were put on notice that Tina Renee Brandon was wanted. The following day on December 15th, 1993, Brandon actually showed up in a Richardson County court for the open container charge. But if you recall the name he had given When he was cited for that was his cousin's name, Charles Brayman. So when that name was called in court, Brandon identified himself as Charles. He entered a plea of not guilty and turned down a court appointed attorney indicating to the court that he would be hiring his own private counsel. Brandon was given a pretrial hearing on January 5th, 1994, and subsequently released again on his own recognizance. But as we know, Brandon would not live to see that court date. Things began to snowball even more so for Brandon by the next day, which was December 16th. Remember, Lisa and Carrie had found all those court papers and citations and various legal documents under the seat of Lisa's car a few days earlier, the night that they had all partied for Brandon's 21st birthday. The amount of legal trouble they found Brandon to be in was shocking. Making matters even worse, Carrie had discovered that a check had been forged on her personal checking account in the amount of $121.35. All things taken into consideration, she figured it was Brandon who did it. Because that's what he does to his friends. Carrie at the time was expecting, so she was already pinching pennies. She couldn't afford to lose any money, much less $121 so she went and filed a police report naming Brandon as the person who committed the forgery. A few hours later police found Brandon and he was taken into custody at the county jail yet again. Brandon called Kelly and he called Lisa collect. I guess he was just trying whichever girlfriend that he had and to see which one was willing to come down and bail him out. Kelly was certain that Brandon was a man That is, until the local newspaper wrote an article about Brandon's arrests and crimes and referred to him as Tina Renee Brandon. So that's what finally got her thinking. Then when she found out that Brandon was being housed in the women's wing of the county jail, that's when it was confirmed for her. Brandon had made several calls to Kelly in the hopes that she would help him get out of jail. But the two people he did not try to call were his mom or his sister because he figured that they'd still be on their so-called tough love kick brandon would end up sitting in the county jail for a week while kelly and lisa stayed in constant contact by phone still confused and dumbfounded about brandon's gender identity they had a hard time wrapping their heads around the notion that brandon was transgender what really finally did it was when lisa had been doing some cleaning around the house And she had found some wrappers from various feminine hygiene products stuffed into crevices and hiding places scattered around the house. Lisa wasn't the one doing it. She knew that. Carrie was pregnant, so it wasn't her. The only person that could have been using these feminine hygiene products was Brandon. During one call between Lisa and Carrie, Brandon broke in on the line with a call from the jail asking them to bail him out. They said that they would... But they didn't. They were both pretty upset at him. Lisa was struggling with everything more so because she said that Brandon and her had sex once actual sexual intercourse. She admitted that she was pretty intoxicated, but she was certain that they had done it. She just really had no other explanation as to what actually happened between them. Brandon finally had his first court appearance in the early afternoon of December 20th, 1993. But with him, he brought another string of lies at the ready to tell the court and the judge. The charges against him were read, and he was facing up to five years in prison, along with a maximum penalty of $10,000 in fines for this forgery charge. Brandon asked for a public defender, but was also asked a series of questions regarding going to school and working, and whether or not there was anybody that relied on him for support, Brandon said that he was a student at Peru State College, which was a little more than 30 minutes north of Humboldt. That was a lie. He said that he had a part-time job and was earning about $230 a week. Also a lie. And when it came to anybody Brandon was liable for, he said that he had an 8-month-old daughter named Jessica, who was in the care of his roommate in Humboldt. Another lie. He said that he paid $75 for rent each month where he was living. Another lie. The judge wanted to be sure that Brandon still had a job after having been in jail for a week. The judge asked about any other prior convictions, and Brandon told the court that he had committed some sort of fraud using the computers at school, and that he had been fined and was on probation for a year. That was another lie. The judge was aware that Brandon was still on probation at that time, but he was unaware of there being a warrant out for his arrest in another county. So bail was set and somebody was going to have to come up with the $250 in order to get him out. And that would end up being girlfriend number eight, Lana Tisdale, that found a way to bail Brandon out. Her dad had given her a signed check for her to use to get her hair done at the salon. She took that check billed it out to herself for the $250 and cashed it out at the hinky dinky, which was adjacent to the court. But because of her age, she wasn't able to do the actual bail transaction herself. So Tom Nissen did it for her. Tom was the one who bailed Brandon out of the county jail. And like I said, Tom Nissen is definitely one of the names that we are going to want to keep track of as we progress And for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to tell you about Tom's origin story. What happened to him, what his upbringing was like, and how he ended up where he ended up at the end of 1993. Tom Nesson's mom, Sharon, she was raised in the town of Rulo. Wikipedia actually calls it a village, population sitting around 160 today. So it's essentially a ghost town. The village gained notoriety in the summer of 1985 when the FBI raided this farm where some religious survivalists headed by a prophet named Mike Ryan were living. There was also a bridge to cross the Missouri River that Rulo was famous for that opened in 1939, but was later replaced by a wider, more modern bridge in 2013, and that original bridge was demolished the following year. At the time that this story took place, there were a couple of local bars that were the main hangouts in Rulo. There was a library, but if you needed groceries, most people went across the river into St. Joseph, Missouri, because they had better weekly specials. Sharon had become a mother for the first time at the age of 14, with a son that she named Scott. Sharon entertained the idea of adopting him out, but... Decided that she couldn't and wanted to raise him herself. Then she met Tom's dad, Ed, about a year later. And while she wasn't crazy in love with him, he was a little bit older. He had a job and he can get her the heck out of Rulo. It was barely 10 days after they met that Sharon and Ed got married at the courthouse, along with Sharon's mom. And his mom was there too, but Sharon's mom needed to be there because she was only 15. The day after they got married, Ed moved himself, Sharon, and her son Scott halfway across the country to Seattle, Washington, where they lived with his brother, Marvin. Sharon didn't like it there, though. It rained just about every single day. It was gloomy and dreary, and she missed Nebraska. Ed was an auto mechanic by trade, so he was able to provide for the family, and he rented a pretty nice two-bedroom house for them. Sharon stayed home, but she wasn't exactly the domestic type. She didn't like to cook, and she certainly didn't like to clean. And before long, she was pregnant again, but the baby ended up being stillborn. Sharon was heartbroken over the loss, and in order to help the situation, Ed went ahead and filed all of the necessary paperwork to officially adopt Sharon's first son, Scott, though that didn't really change things very much for Sharon. She did want another baby. And she wanted a girl. And as for Ed, he really didn't seem to care either way. As time wore on, Sharon grew more and more upset with the direction her life was going. She didn't know anybody in Seattle. She was growing more and more lonely with each passing day. Ed was always busy working or doing other things. She spent most of her time at their home alone with Scott. Eventually, Sharon had had enough and demanded that they move back to Nebraska which they eventually did, moving into a home in Falls City, pretty close to where Sharon's mom and dad had resided. Sharon finally did get what she wanted. In 1970, she and Ed welcomed a baby girl that they named Susan. And the couple were over the moon with having the new baby. However, things soured between Ed and Sharon and Sharon started talking about having another baby as soon as they could after Susan was born. But Ed wasn't really warming up to the idea. He was already working as much as he could. He had plenty of mouths to feed and he didn't want to take on another one. He also wasn't exactly thrilled with the shape that Sharon had been in during and following her pregnancy. He liked her how she was when he met her. A pretty blonde with blue eyes who fit into a size three. She had gained weight. She got sick a lot and she apparently no longer fit into her skinny clothes, which is what attracted him to her to begin with. Aside from that, Ed had started working as a salesman, so he was around a lot less than when he was working as a mechanic. Despite Ed's objections to having more kids, it, of course, didn't stop him from sleeping with Sharon, and they ended up getting pregnant again, giving birth to a baby boy that she named Marvin Thomas Nissen on October 22, 1971. Sharon had gone into labor early, and she ended up taking herself to the hospital because When she got in touch with Ed, he wasn't really interested in interrupting his day to go and meet her there. Tom was born without his father there. And Sharon did call him to tell him that they had a boy, but he really could have cared less, could not have cared less. Sharon was livid and told him, whatever, she didn't care if he wanted to come to the hospital or not to meet his son. As children, their daughter Susan turned out to be the quiet, easy kid. She listened to her mom She was rarely disciplined. She was just a really good, pleasant child. But her brothers, Scott and Tom, wasn't quite as easy with them. Scott was often disciplined with a belt, which Sharon didn't care for, but there was little she could do to stop Ed from doling out such harsh corporal punishments. As for Tom, his behavior wasn't quite as bad as Scott's was just yet, but Tom definitely was slower cognitively So he was punished by Ed for things that he would forget to do or that he would do wrong. Tom would get hit for everything, no matter how trivial. Ed had no patience for the way that Tom was, his disposition, his cognition. It was things that Tom really couldn't help because he was just paced differently than other children his age, and it drove Ed bonkers. It would take Tom forever to finish a meal. Everybody else would be finished and gone, the dishes would be washed and dried and put away, and Tom would still be sitting there at the table staring at his plate of cold food. The way that Tom did things infuriated Ed, and it went beyond just taking forever to eat. He did the same thing sitting on the toilet going potty. If Tom had to go, he would sit there on the toilet seat for as much as an hour, but then the minute that he would stand up, he would urinate on the floor. Even Sharon admitted she felt like beating his butt sometimes when he would pee all over the bathroom floor the second that he stood up from the toilet. Whenever Tom took a bath, he would sit in the water long after it got cold, and he wouldn't move, and he would refuse to get out of the tub. Another odd thing about Tom is that he never cried. Whenever he got spanked or hit, he didn't shed not one single tear. The family of five moved to Memphis, Tennessee for about a year. And once again, against Sharon's wishes, she ended up there with Ed, and she didn't want to. She struggled with the loneliness the same way she had in Seattle. The move only lasted for one year when they ended up moving back to Fall City in 1975. But then when Sharon got home one afternoon, she discovered that Ed had taken everything, everything inside the house, All the kids, all their toys, all the furniture, all their clothes, everything and had disappeared. She contacted his parents, but they had no information that they were willing to share with her. She didn't know what else she could do or if the police would help because they were his kids, even Scott, who he had officially adopted. She didn't know what she was going to do, so she ended up moving back to Memphis, thinking that that's where he may have gone, hoping to find them. She stayed at the home of the one friend that she made while they lived there and tried in vain to track her kids down. She ended up taking a job waiting on tables at a local diner. It wasn't until three months later that she got a knock at the door from the local sheriff. She had been served with divorce papers. It was then she found out that Ed was not in Memphis, but rather he had moved to the city of Eugene, Oregon. He was also petitioning the court for full custody of the three children. Ed, however, wasn't going to stop at that. After the divorce had been finalized, Ed began harassing Sharon. He started calling her incessantly at her place of work, where she was waitressing and where she was living. He was telling her things like the kids were sick, that they were crying for her, that they needed her, when the truth was they weren't really sick. Ed would say, well, Susan had a bad dream and was crying for her mom and they wanted to know why she was refusing to come home. And Sharon was like, what did you expect me to do from nearly clear across the country? Ed was the one who took them away behind her back. Eventually, Ed began getting really mean and cruel by calling her and telling Sharon that he was going to tell the kids that she was dead. After some time had passed, she finally got a call from Ed that he was passing through Memphis and he was headed to Florida and he wanted to give the kids back to her. He was over it. He didn't want them. He wanted to sign over all of his parental rights. But when he got there, they started talking, but things took a turn. He ended up brandishing a gun. He pointed it at his own head, but he didn't pull the trigger, but instead he took off and he took the three kids with them. He called again about 30 minutes later and told sharon that he was going to toss the children off a bridge and into the river his logic was with the kids gone they would have nothing left to ever fight over ever again she contacted police but they were unable to locate ed or their three children a couple of years would pass without sharon having been able to see her kids she eventually moved back to fall city from memphis she met and married a guy named Bob Popejoy. And it was a rocky relationship that involved heavy drinking on his part, some stints in jail, and they married, divorced, and married a second time, and there was some very severe domestic violence incidents as well. If nothing else, Sharon was kept quite busy with this second chaotic marriage. She finally got to see the kids in the summer of 1978 when she took a vacation to Southern California. Ed decided to meet her there, so he drove from Eugene to Anaheim where they spent the day at Disneyland together. Tom Nissen still had the pictures that they had taken from that day some 15 years later. Other than that, Sharon rarely saw her children. Ed would come to Nebraska to visit his family, but he did whatever he could to keep Sharon from seeing the kids. It was many years before she actually was able to have that hard conversation with her children to try and explain how or why she didn't or couldn't fight harder for them. Scott was really the only one who was able to absorb what their mom was telling them. When she finally talked to the kids, he was already 13 years old and he understood, but the other two were a little bit younger. Scott was also told that Ed wasn't his biological dad. So that ended up causing him to feel like everything his dad had been telling him over the years, especially the stuff about his mom that it was all lies in fact when he saw his mom in fall city he wanted to stay with her he didn't want to go back with ed but that only caused ed to fly off the handle he yelled at scott and told him that his mom was a good for nothing whore and that he would be going to live with his mom over his dead body by that time ed was living in crowder mississippi and he was also married for a second time to a very young woman named pamela who did the best that she could to try and fill in as the mother figure in Scott, Susan and Tom's lives, but it didn't go well. Ed continued to be a solid provider. Pamela was able to stay home and take care of the children. In fact, Ed was doing so well with work. He actually didn't understand why Scott had been so hell bent on going back with his mother, who he considered to be a loser with no money. Ed was able to give the kids. Anything their hearts desired, so it was ridiculous to him that any of them would choose to go with their mom over him. But the truth was, Ed and Pamela were really super strict with the kids. Examples given were how the kids were forced to do homework each night, and that they were required to go to church two evenings each week as well. It doesn't sound totally unreasonable to me, but Scott actually didn't want to be bothered with homework, nor did he want to go to church. And he really wanted to go live wild and free with his mom and that had in large part to do with the fact that sharon was still very young and had scott when she was only 14. so it was more like a friendship as opposed to a mother-son relationship scott had said that sharon was really fun and very cool to be around eventually scott had put up so much of a stink to go and live with his mom that ed just got sick and tired of hearing about it and he put him on a plane to Nebraska. Tom, however, was still young and had to stay in Mississippi, and he wasn't happy about it. He hated his stepmom, Pamela. His sister, Susan, was okay with her, but Tom never warmed up, and neither Pamela or Ed really cared for what Tom wanted. They told him to consider himself lucky that he had a roof over his head and food in his belly every single night. Tom Nissen's odd behavior began when he was pretty young, but his family, particularly his older sister Susan, didn't really think that there was anything all that off about him. But from very early, Tom did things that amounted to some pretty destructive behaviors. For example, when he was off playing somewhere, if he ever got hurt, he kind of got rewarded with something to help placate him, like a treat or a new toy. He would eventually resort to self-harm in order to get presents from his parents he and Susan were pretty close growing up like Ed who had been a mechanic and a cabinet maker Tom was also very good when it came to working with his hands so that was his strengths Ed married Pamela in 1981 and she tried extra hard to be a good stepmom to his three children bringing one son of her own into the relationship It took time, but Susan would eventually warm up to Pamela, but Tom, he never did. He never felt like he should have been required to show any kind of respect to Pamela since she wasn't his mother, and it only got worse once his older brother Scott got to go and live with their biological mom. The difference, however, is the fact that Ed wasn't Scott's biological dad, but he was Tom's dad, and that had a lot to do with Scott's move to their mom's instead of him being able to go too. And as soon as Scott found out Ed wasn't his dad, that was when he started rebelling, often running away to go stay with Sharon. Ed had finally just gotten sick and tired of chasing after him and just gave him back to his mom. But none of that really meant anything to Tom. All he knew was that he had his older brother with him until all of a sudden he didn't. He got sent to live with their mom and it was a long time before Tom got to see Scott again. Tom continued to live with his dad and his stepmom, and and he was utterly miserable the entire time. He had even gone outside during a particularly bad winter storm, hoping that he would become violently ill, but it didn't work. Tom was never able to get along with Pamela, and Ed didn't care what Tom thought or felt. He was just going to have to suck it up and deal with it. His resentment towards Pamela continued to build the more that she tried to act like his mom. Eventually, his resentment morphed into anger, which then evolved into hatred. And before long, Tom was constantly fighting with her and her son, Sean. Tom began lashing out at other kids at school or in the neighborhood. He was picking fights and causing trouble. He rarely came out of his bedroom when he was at home and almost always had the music cranked up as loud as he could so he could just drown everybody and everything out. At some point, Tom's dad, Ed, had gotten sober and found the Lord. And with this religious awakening came a whole new set of house rules. No more TV, no more rock music, no school dances, none of this nonsense. Going to church was no longer a choice, it was a requirement. And Tom couldn't stand it. Every second of it, he hated church. Then about a year into Ed's marriage to Pamela, Tom got into some trouble when he got into the wallet belonging to a friend of his dad's who had stopped by to visit and he stole a $100 bill. When Ed found out about the missing money, Tom gave it back, but the punishment was harsh. Ed beat the ever-living shit out of Tom. Tom would say that he was so desperate for love and attention, and acting out was a part of that. But the thing was, his dad and Pamela ended up having their first kid together, So all of a sudden, their love and attention was going towards this new baby. And as a result, Tom became even more withdrawn than ever. Tom did get a measure of contentment any time that he was able to cause a huge fight between his dad and his stepmother. They fought frequently over Tom and his behaviors. After all, any attention is good attention when you're in a situation like Tom's, I suppose. With his dad working all hours of the day and night with the cabinet making business, and Pamela busy with the new baby, Tom was just tired of nobody ever showing up for him. Nobody ever came to his school activities. Nobody ever came to watch him play sports. None of it. His dad was never there. In 1984, that's when Ed moved the growing family to Mississippi, and the fighting between Tom and his stepmom really started escalating. What's worse is that she was pregnant again, and really about to give birth any day when she and Tom had gotten into a knockdown drag out fight. What was the fight about? Pamela was told that Tom used a swear word recently. What was the swear word? He said, damn. And what got her even more upset with Tom was the fact that he would actually get into a physical fight with her, knowing that she was just days away from giving birth. Later on that day that they fought, Tom took off. He was ultimately taken into police custody and brought to a juvenile detention facility and subsequently picked up by his dad. Ed said not a single word to his son on the drive home from Juvenile Hall. Tom started feeling a little bad that the only thing he ever seemed to do anymore was to piss his dad off. When Tom was around the age of 12, he tried alcohol for the first time. He chose to start off with some Southern comfort. And that was the start of a years-long, seemingly nonstop binge of drinking and drugging. The way that whiskey made him feel was a feeling that Tom never wanted to stop chasing. When his older sister Susan got to the age when she started going out with boys, and now that all of her time was being taken up and her attention was diverted elsewhere, Tom started feeling more alone than ever. A feeling that the drugs and the drinking helped to numb. And not only was Susan dating, she was also hanging out with their stepmom more and more. They'd kind of become like friends, to a point that Tom began to feel like the two of them were conspiring against him. What were they conspiring? Probably nothing, since Tom seemed to feel as though the world needed to evolve around him, apparently. Before long, Tom trusted in nobody except for himself. And I don't think even that amounted to very much. So Tom's sister, Susan, has stated that Tom never really got into any serious trouble. That is until the family made the move to Mississippi. He then began stealing cars and running away, and it seemed to come out of nowhere. There were times when the siblings would stay up at night and they would talk or hang out or watch something on TV and everything would seem to be okay. But then the following morning, Susan would discover that her brother had left in the middle of the night. Tom had a hard time dealing with his parents' divorce, and he really wanted to go live with his mom and his older brother, Scott. The split between his parents was difficult, and he never really coped with it. Susan understood, but at the same time, she was able to accept that things just are the way that they are. And it's just life, and you have to take it as it comes. Tom began playing with matches, and in sometime in 1985, Some dry brush and grass ended up catching on fire behind their house. The family didn't think much of it. Kids play with matches. These things happen. At least that's what Susan figured. But it was later on that same year that Tom was expelled from school for either using or possessing illegal drugs. According to Susan, when their dad discovered that Tom had been kicked out of school, he grabbed a stalk of sugar cane and he proceeded to beat Tom so hard with the thing that the sugarcane stalk actually snapped in half mid beating. I don't know how many of you have ever seen or held an average stalk of sugarcane, but a beating with this thing sounds pretty rough. My mom used to plant all kinds of things in our backyard, and there was a time when she had some stalks of sugarcane growing. And it was about that summer when there were... There was lots of construction going on in a large empty field near the neighborhood where we lived that had used to be a dairy farm. And when that construction happened, all of the varmints that lived in the field sort of scattered and the neighborhood became infested with rodents, particularly like gophers. And we were sitting in the backyard, like on the patio furniture one afternoon and we were noticing that the sugar canes started moving kind of swaying side to side, eventually tipping over. It was kind of funny, but not funny because, you know, my mom liked her plants. So gophers had been digging around in the yard and were chewing through the roots and they were chewing through those stalks of sugarcane. even though they're technically a grass. They're so tough that I just can't even imagine taking one of those things and beating a 12 or 13 year old kid with it. I mean, it's pretty outrageous. So anyway, another aspect of Tom's punishment was his dad forced him to attend church services, which Tom hated with a passion. This was punishment for getting kicked out of school. Ed would watch Tom closely to make sure that he was joining in with the clapping and the singing in the church. But there came a time when Ed noticed that Tom was refusing to participate. So he ended up taking him into a private office inside the church And beating him up so badly that tom was unable to attend his pe classes at the new school that he was enrolled at for at least two weeks shortly thereafter tom ran off from home and this time he was gone for a few months he ended up coming back in early 1986 at which point pamela and ed had contacted all of their friends from the church in an effort to try and get rid of whatever evil entity that they believed was in possession of Tom's soul. They were going to put together like an exorcism of sorts, I guess. Tom sort of followed along with what he believed to be a bunch of nonsense to just placate his dad and his stepmom. However, his home life did not improve and he didn't see any hopes of it ever getting any better. Tom knew that he was nothing but problems for his parents and he was so desperate to get away. And he became so despondent and sad and he felt so alone that he began contemplating taking his own life. His only reprieve was drinking and drugs, which he indulged in every chance that he had. In June of 1986, a few months after the demons were exorcised from Tom, he and a friend of his stole a truck in Memphis, Tennessee. And I mean a truck truck, an 18 wheeler, a semi truck in articulated lorry if you're fancy but they really didn't get very far with it at this time tom was only 13 years old going on 14 that october the kids were arrested charged and convicted and placed on two years of probation a couple of days after that court date tom ran away from memphis and he never he didn't go back he ended up back in mississippi it was there that he stole another vehicle this time not quite as huge as an 18-wheeler but still a pretty big car for a kid a lincoln town car someone made the mistake of leaving it parked at a corner store with the keys in the ignition and tom drove it for about two hours north from jackson mississippi to charleston mississippi and i was today years old when i learned that there was a charleston mississippi as soon as he got into charleston he was pulled over and taken into custody And really, the court actually offered Tom a pretty good deal. He could either go to jail or get the F out of the state of Mississippi for the next two years. Tom chose to leave the state. His mom and his older brother, Scott, were living in Nebraska. At this time, he was about to turn 14. He was ready to try for a brand new start with his mom and his stepdad up there. And... Just to be clear, all this time in the book and throughout much of the story, Tom had actually been going by his first name, which is Marvin. Thomas was his middle name. And he was often referred to as Marvin through many of the things that I read about his early life. But when he moved to Fall City, Nebraska on June 9th, 1986, he started going by his middle name, which is what he is mainly known by. I've just been calling him Tom from the beginning because the last thing that this episode needs is more names to keep track of. It was pretty easy for him to transition because he was known as Tom by almost everybody in Nebraska, including his family. Unfortunately for Tom, it wasn't going to be the smooth, fresh start that he had hoped for because he had a stepparent on that end of things that he needed to contend with. His mom had been married to Bob Popejoy, and he and Tom butted heads from day one. According to Tom, Bob drank way too much, but along with that, Tom had been allowed to drink as well, apparently. Within a matter of three months, they were at each other's throats. And Tom was somewhat intimidated by Mom, but by also his own mother, Sharon, because she was constantly mad at Tom for one reason or another. It started to feel like Tom could do nothing but get into trouble, whether it was on his own or along with other kids from school or those who were in his neighborhood. He was in some kind of trouble in some way, shape or form just about every single day. His stepdad apparently had tried to work with Tom to help see him through his problems. But I find it a little difficult to believe that Bob Popejoy fully put his heart and soul into helping Tom if he was always drinking and allowed Tom to drink too. In Aphrodite Jones's book, she described it as helping Tom to feel welcome and wanted. But turning your almost 14 year old stepson into your drinking buddy doesn't sound like the best way to go about that maybe it's just me anyway bob would blame tom for being the one who was unwilling to try to work things out eventually tom heard some dirt about bob and his family and how they were such prolific criminals in the county in which they lived which was richardson county in fact the family had been so busy being up to no good that they actually had their own filing cabinet at the DA's office. So the more Tom would hear about all of the Popejoy's shenanigans, the more he lost whatever respect he had for his stepdad, which was very little to begin with. But his stepdad's criminal background did intimidate Tom. Bob had spent time in jail for burglaries, robberies, countless DUIs. And while he was never convicted of anything of the sort, His former wife had pressed charges against him for domestic violence, but like I said, he had no convictions for that. And as it turned out, the little bad apples don't fall far from the tree. Tom's mom, Sharon, had her own criminal file, which grew pretty consistently with each passing year. Things such as forgeries, DUIs, resisting arrest. However, she managed to skate by without ever being convicted of anything. What frustrated Tom wasn't that his mom had made these mistakes or messed up. What got to him was the fact that Bob was regularly beating her and she would never call the police or have him taken into custody for domestic violence. It was that common cycle. Bob would get super drunk. They would get into a fight. He would beat the crap out of her. Then he'd apologize and she'd forgive him. And he just didn't punch or slap her around. He'd beat her down so badly that there were times when she would be bedridden for days following. She could barely move or get up because she was in so much pain. Tom recalled one specific incident where Bob had actually smashed her face with a brick, leaving her entire face bruised for weeks. The other bad apple, Tom's older brother Scott, who had gone to live with their mom several years before Tom had joined them, He was actively compiling his own criminal file, too. But for Tom, he was actually kind of impressed by all of his brother's criminal behavior. He looked up to Scott, and when Tom moved there in 1986, Scott's criminal behavior had begun to escalate. Prior to Tom's move, Scott had been arrested for breaking into the local high school. He committed various acts of vandalism around the small town, several others in the store. He also forged checks and he spent a few days in jail for animal cruelty. The most serious crime was an arson at that religious survivalist encampment that I mentioned earlier in Rulo. He had He had lit one of their structures or a barn or something on fire, but that was before the FBI had actually raided the place. While Tom had come to Nebraska for a new start, his family situation... Dealing with his stepdad, it made Tom want to get the heck out of Nebraska, just as soon as he got there, almost. His solution, at one point, was to steal Bob's pickup truck and leave town. Tom ended up in Colorado, but like lots of teenagers in the story, tended to do, or not do as it were, he didn't think things through. Like, how was he going to get money for gas or for food? And he ended up having to call home to ask for help. And all he ended up getting was a severe beating after a stepdad and brother had to drive all the way to Colorado to get him. Tom already hated Bob, as it were, for the way that he regularly beat up his mom. But when he got the beating for taking his truck and going to Colorado, he really, really wanted to cause Bob to vanish forever. And he's admitted that he contemplated trying to figure out ways to murder Bob. So not too long after this whole Colorado incident, Sharon had gone somewhere and she had arrived home, but as soon as she walked up to their trailer, she noticed the strong odor of gasoline. She wasn't sure what to make of all that or what this was about, but it was really unnerving. So she called Bob to see if he could leave work a little early and check on where this gasoline smell was coming from. It turned out that somebody had poured gas all around the perimeter of their trailer and he also discovered a gasoline soaked rag under the steps that led up to their front door. Tom was questioned about the gasoline and at first he tried denying that he had anything to do with it. But later on he admitted that it was him that poured the gas everywhere. He claimed that he wanted to be a hero. He wanted to set the trailer on fire. And then he wanted to put the fire out and rescue everybody, save the day, save the family. And that way, he would have finally done a good deed that everyone would be proud of him for. Later on that same night, Bob and Sherrod had gone out drinking. When they arrived home, they thought that Tom was asleep, but he wasn't, and he was overhearing their conversation. He heard his stepdad tell his mom to go into her son's room Hug the boy, tell him that she loved and cared about him to try to smooth things over. But Sharon was like, No, she didn't want to hug him, she didn't want to talk to him, she didn't want to see him, she certainly didn't want to tell him that she loved him. Eventually, her iciness thawed and she went in and did what Bob had suggested. She hugged her son, she told him that she loved him. But the fact that this asshole that he hated, His stepdad had to insist that his own mother go in to tell her own child that she loved him. The whole scenario for him, for Tom, was soul-crushing. After his mom left the room, he found the knife in his drawer and he cut himself on one of his ankles. And while he bled kind of a lot, it didn't cause any major damage to any vein or artery. A few days later, Tom made another attempt at taking his own life by ingesting a variety of prescription pills that he found in the medicine cabinet. But he also survived that attempt as well. By the time Tom was going to turn 16, Bob and Sharon had had it with him. He was stealing from them, he was taking money and credit cards and anything of value that wasn't nailed down. He was out of control and they could no longer keep him in check. So they contacted social services, and officially washed their hands of him by turning him over to the state of Nebraska. He went to a group home for about a month until he was placed with the foster family. They had a farm, which was in a pretty isolated area. He started going to the local high school, and he did chores around the house and around the property. By then, Tom had been drinking and using drugs for several years, and it had become a pretty serious addiction. Tom was only with the foster family for about a month when they had him admitted to a mental health care facility in Omaha out of concerns that Tom was suicidal. He stayed there for a month, but as soon as he got back to the foster family, he picked right back up with the substance abuse and the self-harm. A few weeks later, Tom skipped town once again, this time stowing away on a freight train, and he ended up in Everett in the state of Washington. He had an uncle that lived there of this move to Washington. Tom stated by that time, I was drunk all the time, smoking dope, doing Coke, anything to make me feel better. I had also sliced my stomach open. I didn't deserve to live. All I did was cause problems for people. My anger was getting the best of me. So now you see here with Tom Nissen, we have a very, very angry young man. Tom Nissen never really had a solid plan whenever he would run away and take off from his family. There were times when he would be so high or so drunk that he would actually have no idea how he wound up where he ended up. Then he would find himself stranded and then he would have to call either his mom or his dad and ask if he could come home and every time one or the other would hesitantly take him back. Tom had feelings of hopelessness. He didn't feel like he could depend on anybody in his family and he had wished that he had had someone that was stable that could understand him that he could reach out to for some help in his eyes. He felt like he was the only one searching for a solution to his problems and everybody else in his life was just useless. He had a hard time expressing how he felt to his family And it left him feeling very alone and dejected, and he hated himself. He hated what his life had become. He felt as if he was worthless. Tom went into a new foster home in Falls City, but he ultimately ran away from there also in the late summer of 1989. And he was set to turn 18 that October. He had expressed a desire to take his own life, so the foster family that he was staying with ended up contacting authorities that helped track him down. When the police found Tom, they suggested to him that he be admitted back into the mental health facility once again, but this time focus on getting treatment for his addictions. Even Tom felt like it was time for him to accept the help. He was so sick all the time. He was barely eating. He had lost so much weight. He went back to the treatment center, but he wasn't really all that forthcoming about what was really going on with him. He would tell his therapist that he was checked into the facility for skipping school. After a while, he did open up about wanting to try to get sober and wanting to stay out of trouble and to stop fighting with his family. At the same time, Tom said he didn't feel like he had any place to go. He said his mom's home was the worst place he had ever lived. His dad's home was the second worst place he had ever lived. And his uncle's home was the third place that he had ever lived. And that was about his entire immediate family. It didn't seem like it may have occurred to him that he was the common denominator and perhaps he was the problem and that there was something about him that needed a change, but he was busy blaming everybody else in his family. Tom's psychologist diagnosed him with conduct disorder, which is sort of an umbrella term for a set of behaviors and emotional problems characterized by a disregard for others. Children with conduct disorder have a difficult time following rules and behaving in socially acceptable ways, and the behaviors can sometimes become hostile and violent. Tom was also diagnosed with a depressive disorder, which is characterized by sadness that's so severe and persistent that it interferes with daily function, along with a disinterest and an inability to find pleasure in anything. Tom also tested as functioning at about the age of a 12 or 13-year-old and had an estimated IQ of about 82, which is below average. Tom was anxious to get out of the treatment facility. He was there for a couple of months. His 18th birthday had passed. His therapist wanted him to continue with the inpatient treatment, especially since he had expressed his desire to murder his stepfather. But nobody ever really followed through. And just weeks after he turned 18, on November 9, 1989, Tom left the mental health care treatment center. He went back to his foster home and he started going to the local high school again. In his paperwork, when he was discharged, it was noted that Tom exhibited prominent sociopathic traits. And with that, Tom went right back to drinking and using drugs constantly to a point that he was always sick, always throwing up, barely able to walk, had constant pounding headaches, and frequently he was blacking out. He was getting into that time of year when there was Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and he felt like he needed a party as hard as he could to make up for the months that he had spent in that inpatient treatment center. His foster family had had enough of him and told him he was no longer welcome. He was 18 years old, so I guess they had no obligation to keep him around anymore. Tom had made himself so sick from the hard partying that he ended up calling his dad, Ed, who was still down in Mississippi. And he wound up back down there with Ed and his stepmom once again. And it was as if Tom had never gone anywhere because the fighting picked up from right where they had left off four years earlier. It got so bad that Tom ended up living at his dad's place of work, which was a cabinet-making business that he had opened. Things kind of started looking up for Tom a little bit. He was working for his dad. He was earning some money legitimately, and he also found a girlfriend, so he was in love for the first time. But then tragedy struck. Pamela, his stepmom's mother, passed away and Tom had actually been pretty close to her and considered her to be his Nana. After the funeral, Tom picked back up with the drinking and the drugs and was pretty much intoxicated 24-7. It all came to head sometime in May of 1990 when Tom just could not take it anymore. He took a gun that had belonged to his dad and he actually shot himself in the chest. The bullet went through and through, punctured a lung and exited out his back. And in the process... That bullet missed everything vital that would have killed him. Within weeks, Tom was okay. He recovered, but he went into a drug rehab center. And that was the point when Tom had failed yet again to end his own life, and he had just decided that there was nothing in this world that he would ever be able to do right. He stayed in rehab for a couple of months. He seemed to be doing okay in treatment and in group therapy, but in August, he just up and left one day August of 1990 the following month he was taken into custody for filing a false police report he had claimed that a friend of his had stabbed him in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant but the truth was that the stab wounds were really self-inflicted Tom's mom and his grandpa tried reaching out to him to help him but he had nothing really to say to any members of his family Tom met Candy Gibson in October of 1990. He was 19 years old. She was about 16 or 17. And while Tom considered Candy to be a little more than a fling or maybe a one or two night stand, but as far as she was concerned, he was the one and she clung to him fast and hard. Candy was a pretty ditzy girl, kind of dumb. And it seemed like Tom did enjoy all of the attention that she would give him how she was always all over him and hanging on him constantly whenever they were together. And she was already a mom to a six month old. And one day, not too long after they started seeing each other, Tom kind of half jokingly asked Candy to marry him. And she immediately said yes. Tom had grown very fond of Candy's baby, but when it came to Candy, he thought that she was pretty promiscuous. She wasn't all that bright and he didn't seriously think that they would get married. They fought a lot, And both of them had trust issues even before they met. In December of 1990, Tom Nissen was arrested for drug possession. And while he was only sentenced to serve five days in the county, he decided that he did not want to serve those five days. So he took Candy and the baby and fled Nebraska and headed back to Mississippi. And they both had kind of a good time down there for a minute. They went out a lot. They were drinking together and Tom's sister, Susan, she liked candy and would babysit so that they could go hang out. But the drinking of course led to lots of fights between the two of them. And it got so bad that Tom had even kicked candy out twice. So her dad had to drive down and pick her up and bring her back to Nebraska twice. But the second time dad was like, say goodbye to Tom Nissen forever. That was the condition. Never speak to that guy again if you're going to come back. This is the last time he was going to go and pick her ass up. Tom ended up going back to Nebraska, begging for Candy to take him back. They began secretly seeing each other. He was sneaking into her parents' house at night to have sex until they got caught. And her dad told him, do not ever set foot in his house ever again or else. Desperate and not knowing what to do next, Tom decided that he was going to go into the military, and he was going to marry Candy before he left. In short order, he enlisted, he went to boot camp, he had a mental breakdown, and he was hospitalized for that and for his alcoholism. When Tom was examined, the cuts and the gunshot wound scars were noted on his body. He admitted to being a heavy smoker and a heavy drinker, and that he had used illegal drugs in the past. And while he did not admit to being suicidal, he did admit that he was the one who shot himself in the chest. I can't imagine he was going to be enlisted in the army for very much longer, but he was set up with another appointment to see the doctor, but he decided to not show up. And I suppose he saved the army the trouble of discharging him by discharging himself by way of going AWOL. This is going to sound way out there, but Tom joined a traveling carnival and went across the United States He wound up back in Washington State for a while with his uncle, then back down in Mississippi with his dad, working for this carnival. Then he went to Nebraska as often as he could to go and see Candy. But eventually, he found out that she had another boyfriend whenever he wasn't around. So now Tom has found himself heartbroken and stuck back from where he started in Falls City, Nebraska. Tom's life was all the makings of a country song. He lost his girlfriend. His dad had him fired from his cabinet making company. He got fired from another job that he found. He totaled two cars, the place that he was living burned down. His dog ran away and Candy was having another baby. Tom thought this one might be his, but might not be his. He was seeing somebody else at the same time too, who he was living with unbeknownst to Candy, blah, blah, blah. Candy had the baby in May of 1992. She named Tom as the dad, but like I said, who knows? When the baby was about a week old, the trouble that Tom had run into the previous year came back to bite him in the butt. Remember those five days in the county jail that he was supposed to serve that he never served? Well, he got picked up on that warrant and ended up in the county jail for about a month. And then, in June of 1992... Tom and Candy figured that it would be a great idea just to swell if they finally tied the knot and got married. But Tom continued getting into legal trouble, having been arrested on charges of burglary and arson now. He was sent for a mental health evaluation once again. They noted the bullet wound scar and discovered some of the cuts and other scars on his body. But the attending doctors found that Tom was not suffering from any mental illness and he did not need to be committed for any sort of treatment. Tom ended up being sentenced to prison for the first time for a relatively substantial amount of time for the burglary and the arson, three years. He was convicted based on a couple of fingerprints that were identified as his that were found at the scene and in early September of 1992, Tom was transferred to a Nebraska state prison it was particularly hard on tom this time around i mean not that prison is ever easy but it was hard on him because he was a father maybe and he knew or at least he felt like candy was really unfit to be a mom where she was living the place was always infested with bugs dirty dishes always filled the sink and used diapers were typically left all over the place Tom would hear things from his sister and his friends about the conditions that Candy kept the home where she was raising the kids. But most just thought that Candy didn't really know how to properly take care of children and a home. As stated earlier, Candy was kind of a dingbat and basic life skills simply weren't in her wheelhouse. She would do things like put the kids in semi-damp clothing that wasn't finished drying and send them outside to go play in the freezing cold Nebraska weather. She would warm up a can of soup and sit that bowl in front of an 18 or 24 month old thinking that the child would be able to just spoon feed themselves. And Candy not only lived by the five second rule, it was the unlimited amount of time rule for her. No matter what dropped on the floor or how long it sat there, she would consider it edible, at least for the kids. If they dropped the cookie last week and found it, seven days later, she'd hand it to the kid and they'd eat it. She'd even pull dirty dishes and dirty silverware out of the sink and reuse it to serve meals. So this girl just had no idea. Tom ended up being given parole in May of 1993. He was 21 years old. In Aphrodite Jones's book, his birthday is off by a year. He was born in 1971, but she listed him as being born in 1972. So if some of these dates and ages I've provided seem slightly off, it's because of that confusion. But I have confirmed that Tom was indeed born on October 22, 1971. So in all, Tom served only eight months of his three-year sentence for arson and burglary. So technically, seven months later, on December 31, 1993, The night of the triple murders at Lisa Lambert's farmhouse, just outside of Humboldt, Tom Nissen should have still been in prison. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to pause this story here. We will pick it up from the time Tom Nissen is out of prison and where he went from there. I want to thank you for listening to this series as we remember the very short life of Brandon Tina this month, as June is when the LBGTQ community is celebrated. Please join the Facebook discussion group where we can share comments and questions about this case. Follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. If you would like to help support the production of this podcast, you can join Patreon where there are dozens of bonus episodes that you can gain access to starting at $1 a month. And Dreamers, every little bit helps. Times are tough, prices for everything have skyrocketed, but I am keeping this show ad-free, which means I depend solely on Patreon and PayPal to produce your free weekly episodes and the monthly bonus episodes for subscribers. Access to the monthly bonuses will always be available to every Patreon subscriber. And I'm not sure that there are very many content creators who do offer the monthly bonus at the $1 level. It has always been that way with our show and I don't intend to ever change that, but I do depend on subscribers to offset the cost and time it takes to produce California Dreaming. I wanna thank you again so much for listening. I'm a little bit late in the month of June for the Patreon bonus, so I'm going to get started on that next, and then we will finish up this series, hopefully before the end of June. I'm your host, Roseanne. Please, as always, take care, be safe, and until next time, sweet dreams and love one another.